All right, so even though we took a break last week and uh, got into textual criticism a little bit and that passage that's contested at the end of John 7, the beginning of John 8, we're picking up exactly where we left off the week before. So we are still in the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and either by celebration or you're just happy we're done, this will be the last week when we do feast symbolism. But this is important, trust me, this will draw all this back together. And so where we are right now is most likely continuing on where Jesus finished at the end of chapter 7, where he tells them that if they come to him, he will give them rivers of living water that will go on into eternal life. And the Pharisees get all bent out of shape, and the officers that they sent to arrest Jesus came to the Pharisees, and they're having this this little deliberation, and most likely the Pharisees now are coming to confront Jesus. And Jesus again is speaking very prophetic, very powerful words, saying, I am the light of the world. This is important by this festival, and we're going to get into that in just a second, but it's also important for, for timing. I could make the case that this entire dialogue in chapters 7, 8, 9, and even the beginning of 10 all take place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And we know that time has not changed because not until 1021 is there another time marker. In 1021, John says that now the Feast of the Dedication was upon them. So if you're not familiar with the Jewish calendar, that's also Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And so there is a direct connection here between Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, and we're going to talk about the part of the Feast of the Booths that was associated with lights, also looking forward to the next festival, the Festival of Lights. And so that's where we find ourselves right now. That's as much as we're going to get as a, by way of summary, but I want us to follow the, the themes here. The first I am in the book of John is I am the bread of life. We saw that in chapter 6. The bread of life was to remind the Israelites that while they were in the wilderness, God gave them manna from heaven, bread that literally leads to their lives. And so Jesus is the spiritual bread of life that if you eat from him, you will never hunger again and never thirst again. And in chapter 7, we see that if you come to him, you get rivers of living water. This was to look back to the rivers of water that came out of the rock that Moses hit. In the wilderness, it was so dry and they had nothing to drink that water flowed out of this rock and fed all of Israel. Bread of life, rivers of living water, and also now we're going to see, I'm the light of the world. So what else happened when they were in the wilderness is they were led by the very presence of God. We're going to explain the Shekinah glory. God's very dwelling that went before them. And it was a pillar of fire. A light that guided them on where to go, but also protected them. And so this part of the the lighting of the temple ceremony, which I'm going to explain now, was to remind Israel that while they were in the wilderness, God provided a light for them so that they were never without his presence, never without a reminder of God being with them, never without his protection. And so two weeks ago, we looked at the, uh, the water pouring ceremony and they would take water from the pool of Siloam and bring it up to the temple. Well, this would go on, this celebration, this singing, the reading of scriptures would go on night and day. And so the party couldn't stop at night, right? So they had to construct these big towers. And I want to give you an explanation from different Jewish sources of what was happening during this uh, lighting of the temple ceremony. You'll have a picture up on the screen. And it gives you an idea of what's going on here. So here's, here's what we know. On the nights of the feast, Sukkoth in, in Hebrew, the outer courts of the temple... The courts of the women 
which contained the treasury, we'll get there later, uh, was brilliantly illuminated with four golden lamps, like the one you see there. Those lamps were probably about 75 feet high. And so to fill them with oil, the young priests in training would have to climb these tall ladders and make sure that those lights never went out during the celebration. And there were special galleries that were erected so the women, you see the women up higher, they would actually build those. They would build bleacher seating for the, the, for the women to be a part of it as well while the men underneath danced. The most reverent and respected rabbis would dance and play instruments and would, would hold torches. There's even stories of rabbis who were juggling eight torches and they were doing acrobatics and flips and things because they were so excited in this proceeding. Now they separated the men and the women because they did not want them to be undignified together. They did not want anything inappropriate to happen and they were very segmented in that culture. But the women were there to observe. And, uh, and then during all this, the Levites would chant and sing. Uh, the, the Psalms were separated into different parts used for different times. And so during this time in the evening, they used the songs of degrees. So that's the Psalm 120 through 134. And the Levites would chant and sing these while playing every instrument that they had available to them. And um, they would light these, these lamps and they'd keep them burning all night long. And the instruments would be heard all over Jerusalem and the light would shine all over Jerusalem. This is how they describe it. The illumination, which was like a sea of fire, lit up every nook and corner of Jerusalem. It was so bright that in every part of the city, a woman could pick the wheat from the chaff by the light from the lamps. And they say, this is a direct quote, whoever did not see this celebration never saw a real one. So this was the celebration to end all celebrations. And the festival was celebrated throughout the night with songs, music, shouting, clapping of hands, jumping and dancing. This was the feast, the ceremony that everyone looked forward to. So the water drawing was the the more spiritual, reverential part of it. And this was the celebration atmosphere, the lighting of these these lamps. So I did something interesting this week, uh, and I highly recommend it. I went and there's a temple institute where Jews are at the forefront of wanting to rebuild the temple in Israel. There's some issues with that, and we won't touch on that now. But what was really interesting is that one of the rabbis at the forefront has made it his mission to teach on every aspect of temple life. And from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, and from the Jewish sources, he teaches on every one of these festivals, everything that happens. And so I watched some of his series entitled The Infinite Light, describing this very process and how the Sukkot was a celebration of how life could be. Listen to the details. This is, I'm giving you a summary of what he taught. He taught that this celebration was to be a little taste of the presence of God because to them the presence of God truly dwelt within the temple and they longed for that. This was to show them the spirit of God. This was to reveal to them the spirit of prophecy. These are not Messianic Jews. And he said, and I quote, this festival is to symbolize the light of God going out to the whole world. I said, well, thank you for the sermon illustration. But how sad it made me in that moment. He was so emotional, almost to the point of tears. I want the temple back so I could feel what it's like to be in the presence of God. I want to celebrate with God's people. I want to know that the spirit of God is near me. 
I want to understand the prophecy of God properly. I want to be a part of God's light going out to all the world. And he's almost begging God for this to happen again. And they think that the rebuilding of the temple will do that. And it's so sad. He was wishing he could be at the temple, proclaiming this infinite light that happened at the ceremony and miss the light that fulfills all of those things. So it was sad. It was a little fun. It was kind of these bunch of like blues rabbis. So you got these big guys with big beers playing electric guitars and no joke. So they did modern versions and then they literally pulled out flutes and lyres and they did more, uh, more, more traditional versions. It's very interesting. If you want the video, I'll send it to you. But it's amazing that they recognize all of this symbolism, but miss the connections that we're going to look at this morning. So open your Bibles to John chapter 8. I'm going to read from verses 12 to 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, perfect, wonderful, awesome, majestic, powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, all-merciful. At one with the Father and at one with your Spirit, all culminating in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for coming to earth. Thank you for walking among us, for dwelling among us. Thank you for sending your Spirit so that we can have your presence. Thank you for the spirit of prophecy that we get in your Scriptures that declare who you are. Thank you that you dwell with us every day and that we can look forward to dwelling with you for eternity. Thank you for all of scriptures and all of creation declaring who you are and coming to culmination in Christ and revealing Christ to us. Lord, I pray that your light this morning would illuminate our minds, give us wisdom and discernment, apply this passage to our hearts and our minds and our actions that we would be transformed by Jesus Christ. And it would be continually transformed into his image as we follow till he comes again or takes us home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this morning I'm mainly going to focus on verse 12. So you'll get a little bit of 13 to, to 20 because these things have been addressed in chapter 5, in chapter 7, and they will be addressed again. So I'm going to hit the highlights of those, but most of our time is going to be spent on this I am the light of the world statement. And today I'm going to use a lot of illustrations. And by way of illustration, the word to illustrate means to shed light on. 
to make clear by explaining. And so in a message about light, we're going to shed a lot of light on what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. So let's begin in chapter 8, verse 12. Now, if you remember where we were a couple weeks ago, Jesus sat down when, when he taught, but when he stood up to say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, he transitioned from being a teacher to a prophet. And so this is a lot more in line with him standing as a prophet, saying, I am the light of the world, declaring this in the very treasury, in the very outer, outer courts of the temple, where these, even if it was during the day, these lampstands would still be, that you could probably still smell the smoke from them burning all night long. And he says, I am the light of the world. And so how do we read, I am the light of the world? Well, John helps us interpret this. He is the light of the world generally. Turn to John chapter 1. You should all have this memorized by now. John chapter 1. Look at verse 4. In him was life, and life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. So he's giving you the, the quality and character of the light. Then verse 9 gets a little more specific. True light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So what does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world, generally speaking? He is the creator and sustainer of all things. By him, everything holds together and has their, their meaning. So generally speaking, the fact that we can even think and act and do and feel is because Christ's light shines on us. As the creator and sustainer, everyone receives that light. But not everyone receives it in the same way. John makes some distinctions here. Look at chapter 3 of John, verse 21. Verse 21 says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So Jesus is the light of the world generally, but he's also the light of the world specifically. He is a salvific light that marks those who are doing the will of God. Again, in chapter 12, look at verse 36 of chapter 12. We will spend more time on this when we get there. This theme continues in chapter 9 and chapter 12. But verse 36, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. There's a difference between those who receive the light, as in Jesus is their creator and sustainer, but those who believe in him will become sons of light. So this takes an extra step and an extra identity. When he says he's the light of the world, if it wasn't for me, everyone else would just be gone. But even a step further, if you believe in me, you can be a son of light. You can inherit that light. So Jesus is speaking generally and specifically. And there's a lot of Old Testament symbolism here as well. And I discovered this this morning, actually, so I just threw it in last minute. Psalm 36, we read this before service. We read it for our time of prayer. And I didn't realize how closely the rivers of living water and the, the fountain of living water and the light of the Lord are connected. If you can get there quickly, get there. If not, I'm going to read it. Uh, Psalm 36, verse 8 and 9. It says, They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. And in your light do we see life. Jesus is clearly connecting 
the river of delights, the fountain of life, and the light by which we see light, and how the people of God will reflect and possess that light. So think about Old Testament symbolism. Remember we said bread of life, manna in the wilderness, water of life, water in the wilderness, light of the world, light in the wilderness. I mentioned the word Shekinah earlier. It it means dwelling, the Hebrew understanding of the very presence of God being there. The Shekinah glory is what they called the glory cloud that remained with Israel while they were in the wilderness. And that when they built the temple would have a, a home to dwell. But even Solomon, as we saw a few weeks ago, knew that God could not dwell in a house made by human hands. But while they're in the wilderness, it was manifested in that fiery pillar in the sky. And it was symbolized by these great light towers that they were to be reminded of. So what Jesus is saying here is in the midst of this great celebration, he said, you know that light that you're celebrating? You know these big towers that were reminding you of what kept you in the wilderness? I am that light. I guided you in the wilderness. I am the one who kept your fathers safe. I guided them then, and I will guide you now. In the the time of Israel's wilderness wandering, the light of God guided them. And so for us, this is the time of our wilderness wandering. You've heard me make these connections before, but I hope you, you get this this morning. Because just like Israel was taken out of slavery in Egypt and they were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who are in Christ are taken out of the slavery of sin and redeemed by the blood of their spotless Lamb. Brought out of Egypt, brought out of our slavery, on our way to our promised land. Sound familiar? But we're not there yet. And there will be a time when we're wandering in the wilderness, coming from our slavery to sin and to our fulfillment and our promised homeland. But in that season, we have to trust in the Lord for daily food, for daily light, for daily water. And the the parallels are uncanny. It is perfect. And we are to see the same way that God provided for his people in the wilderness. He will provide for them now. And like the Israelites, we must follow our light. We must keep our eyes fixed on it so we don't wander, so we don't stumble. So we follow it to our promised land. Anybody making connections for the life of the believer here? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. This language in the Greek is what's called a present participle. It means whoever continuously follows, whoever continues to follow, not just the person who makes a decision and goes back to sinning. Not just the person who makes a decision and sits on the couch. Those who continuously follow will not walk. This is active language. They will not sit in darkness. They will not walk in darkness. I want to talk about darkness for a moment. John is great for these contrasts. Light and dark is a theme that goes throughout scripture, and I wish I could spend more time on it. I know I say that every week because I really want to spend more time on everything. But just like Israel, we need to keep our eyes on the light because we're in a world of darkness. We know that the the world is affected by the curse. Everything that we touch is going to die. Everything that we touch is affected by sin. The very cosmos, the very world, even the heavens are affected by sin. I mean, physical heavens. 
And we must walk in light in the midst of that. No matter what's going on around us, in Christ, in the light of the world, we will not walk in darkness. Our path will be lit. and We will have nothing to fear. That's not always the case. Because even though our light is right in front of us, our fiery pillar is guiding us, still feels like, like Pharaoh's armies are right on our heels, right? And we have to remember that just like he delivered them, he will deliver us. Even if not in this life, but in the next, our eternity is sure. I love what uh, Sir Francis Bacon says about this. Renaissance author, philosopher, believer, scientist. You got the Bacon quote first? Oh, you know what? I skipped one. This is really good, too. So this was supposed to be a few minutes ago. Um, So Robert Murray McShane is a a, a Scottish preacher. He says, a beam of God's countenance is enough to fill the heart of a believer to overflowing. It is enough to light up the pale cheek of a dying saint with seraphic brightness and to make the heart of the lone widow sing for joy. When we think about Jesus being a light to the world specifically, bringing light, making us sons of light, that is the picture. Just a beam of God's countenance is enough to fill the heart of a believer. Now, Sir Francis Bacon says, in order for light to shine so brightly, the darkness must be present. And this is for us to understand that the light shines most brightly when it is dark. And that is to be an encouragement to us. Psalm 119 tells us that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You ever thought about this? Many of us know this. But a light on your feet and a lamp on your path would not be needed if you were walking in the daytime. This is not speaking to people who are walking in the daytime. We are walking in darkness. We are walking in a sinful, fallen world all around us. And we need the word of God to light our path because the word of God points us to the word make flesh, our light. Another great quote from Robert Murray McShane. He says, when you're reading a book in a dark room and come to a difficult part, you take it to a window to get more light. So take your Bibles to Christ. I love that. If you guys want, I'll send all these quotes tomorrow. You don't have to write them all down. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) We do this naturally. When things are unclear to us, okay, let's move closer to the light. But when spiritual things are unclear to us, do we do the same thing? Do we come to God in prayer? Do we bring our Bibles to Christ and say, illumine this for me. You are my light. And this should be wonderful news to us living in a dark world. Because every time we see sin, death, pain, injustice, we know that Jesus is the light and the remedy for it all. And we know that even though those things happen around us, we walk in the the shining glow of that light. He is the answer now to all of the darkness around us. Everything that goes wrong, Christ is the answer. He is the light. He is what everyone needs. And he is ultimately the solution for all things. I love Revelation 21 and 22 because it shows us the end of the story. Revelation 22 tells us that there will be no more light in the new Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord God is the light. The fulfillment of all of this is Jesus is the temple and the Lord God is the light. That worship that the rabbi wants so badly will be perfect. In everlasting light, in everlasting glory, in an everlasting temple, who is Christ Jesus himself standing in this temple? 
It's astounding how rich all this is and how much they miss. But for now, we walk in darkness. And for many believers, many believers I know, they're more focused on the darkness than the light. It's easier to see the darkness and the light. Am I right? And there's a discouragement that comes from reminding ourselves about the darkness. Did anyone grow up up north? I mean, like way up north. So northeast, northwest. Anyone ever heard of SAD, S-A-D? Seasonal Affective Disorder. So if you grew up up north, you people from the south, just be happy you don't have this. When you don't see the sun for months at a time, and it is dark, and it is snowing, and it is ugly, and you people from New York City, you don't understand that as much as those who live by the Great Lakes. And, and how depressing and discouraging that is just to, be, just to be without light for several days, several weeks, several months. That consistent darkness, it has an effect on you. We went to my grandmother's funeral a few years ago in February. And we went, and the snow was melting, and it was a nice sunshiny day. I was like, this isn't too bad. And my cousins are like, thank you for bringing the sun, because we haven't seen the sun in 29 days. They were counting. And the effect that that has on you. But how many people live like that? How many believers are so focused on the gloom and the doom and the negative things of this world that it's so hard for them to see the light? And the effect that that darkness has on them. Because what happens in the darkness? We get so disoriented, so discouraged, and so scared that darkness has an effect on us. Another illustration. All of us know what it's like to get up and use the bathroom in the middle of the night, right? And we know we want to try to stay asleep, so we don't turn the light on. And then every um, bedpost, every door frame, every toy becomes an obstacle. And we all know what that's like. Like, that's a shared experience. But that's what life is like without Christ. It is trying to avoid the light, stumbling around in the dark, tripping over everything. Are you living like that? Even believers live like that. They're scared to turn on the light. They're more comfortable in the dark. They want to go back to sleep. And they trip over everything in their way. Reach for the light. Wake up. Let Christ be a light unto your path. Let him be a lamp on your feet. And stop you from stubbing your toe. There's a great quote from Blaise Pascal as well. In faith there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. Light illuminates things, but it also creates shadows. We are to be people who remember and focus on the light and not the shadows. So what else happens in the darkness? We know what else happens in the darkness is we think no one sees what we're doing. But Jesus tells us that everything that is done in secret will come to the light. We need and we should want the light of the world to expose the darkness within us so it can, he can draw us to his marvelous light. So often we like our darkness and we want to hold on to it. And we want to guard and protect it and we don't want to let Jesus in. Uh, Richard Sibbs who actually wrote a book on 
Isaiah 42, a bruised reed, which Deshaun recommended, and it's fantastic. I love it. Only a, a Puritan could write about 200 pages on one verse, but it's fantastic. He talks a lot about light and dark in that. And Charles Spurgeon described him as, as a man who spreads gems and diamonds with both hands. His writing is fantastic. Here's what he says. Measure not God's love and favor by your own feeling. The sun shines as clearly in the darkest day as it does in the brightest. The difference is not the sun, but in some clouds which hinder the manifestation of the light thereof. God's light does not change. But some of us carry our own clouds with us. And we try to block God's light out and like to stay in our little moving storms. And so many times, instead of looking to our pillar of light, we want to wander off in the darkness and try to make our own way. Instead of fixing our eyes on Christ, we try to do things ourselves. Maybe there, I can find some other light in the darkness somewhere instead of keeping our eyes fixed on the light. You know what was a great example for those Israelites is when the, when the pillar moved, they moved. When it stayed, they stayed. That is what it is like to be focused on Christ. To see that shining light in front of you and move when he moves and stay when he stays and be, and be comfortable where he has you. That is the only way they would survive is if they kept their eyes on that cloud and did whatever it did. I love what J.I. Packer says about this. We are to order our lives by the light of his law, not our guesses about his plan. Anyone's life guided by, I wonder if God wants me here, I wonder if God wants me there, instead of basking in the light of his law. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Will have the light of life. It is a possession. A mirror reflects the sun. And we do that in a way. But when we have the light of light, it's more like a firefly who actually possesses this light. And our lights may, may, may blink and flicker a little bit. And some of us brighter than others. Don't look at me. You guys know what fireflies are. You should. And that's what we are. We actually possess that light in Christ. Those who follow him, those who trust in me. And there is a connection between light and life. It's been there since the beginning. What do we know about life and light? That light is necessary for all things to grow. Light spreads, illumines everything that it comes into contact with. Light is all-encompassing. And as we know from John 1, all light comes from Christ. From the very beginning of creation, the first thing that happened was light had to separate the darkness. And in new creation... Light is shed where there was only darkness before. And hearts are transformed. Eyes are opened. Light is shed where there was only darkness and death before. And in the new creation, through Christ, we are now the light of the world. We have the light of life. And through union with Christ, we don't have to search for him anymore. We don't have to search out the light. We have that light as a possession. And we walk in that light. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 5. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 for me. You should all be familiar with this. 
Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The light of the world sheds his light on us, gives it to us as a possession so that we can be a witness for him and give glory to God. All of this is for God's glory and by it, the entire world will be blessed. The promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed because of you. We see it in the light of Christ, in the life of believers. We use our lights and not put them under bushels. I love what Dwight Moody says about this. We are told to let our light shine. And if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. I don't have to say anything else to that. Okay, so what does that look like practically? Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, I know that if I'm in Christ, I have the light of the world. I can shine it. I can not put it under a bushel. I'm going to let my little light shine. But what does that look like? Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 7. Paul begins chapter 5 talking about the sons of disobedience, ones who are filthy and, and, and crude and who are sexually immoral and covetous and all these things. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not become partners with them, the sons of disobedience, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that is visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Or that picture of the person stumbling around at night who doesn't want to turn the light on. Awake, O sleeper. Arise and Christ will shine on you. And when he does, he goes on, verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. Making the best use of the time. We're stewards of our own time. Because the days are evil. We walk in darkness. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. What is to mark the life of a believer? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Joyful people. Singing and making melody to the Lord in their heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it look to have the light of life? That's it. If you want that reminder, go back to Ephesians 5. So now we know what the light of the world is and what we have by possessing that light of life. And how do the Pharisees respond to this? Back in John chapter 8. They just completely disregard what he just said. 
They don't ask any questions about it. They don't want any clarification. They just accuse. Verse 13, so the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. I love what Kent Hughes says about this. They hung their disbelief on a technicality. And they did. The, the, the mission of the Jewish commentary in the Old Testament says, you, no man can give witness for himself. So logically, there's a conflict of interest here. If the only witness is the man himself, and legally, according to the standard of the Pharisees, it wasn't acceptable in their courts if someone gives a witness about themselves. But here's the problem. They still had natural eyes looking for natural solutions. But light is the ultimate witness. It shines on everything. Unless you're blind. Light cannot be witnessed if you have no eyes. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said people stumble in the, in the midst of, of the day. Not for lack of light, but for lack of eyes. So these are the Pharisees who are supposed to see clearly the law, but are blind to the fulfillment of the law standing in front of them. So Jesus responds as, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. The source of the testimony can bear witness. He can bear testimony. He's, he's qualified. He's the very alpha and omega. He's the very beginning and end. Just like light, we, don't, we can't see the beginning or the, the end of it. He shines from eternity to eternity, and they don't know that because they are blind to it. One author puts it this way. Questioning the witness of Jesus is like questioning the sun. It is so clear. I see you shining up there, but you're going to have to prove to me that you give light and heat. And Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Well, this is a contradiction. We saw in John chapter 5, and we'll see again that Jesus is to judge all things. Let's read this carefully. You judge according to the flesh. Remember 1 Samuel 16. God does not see the way man sees man judging the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. Jesus is, is in a sense saying, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one according to the flesh. Because he goes right on to say, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. His judgment is not unsubstantiated. He appeals to the highest authority, his Father, which he claims unity with again and again and again. We're going to see this throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. If you don't believe me, look to the Father. If you don't know me, you don't know the Father. So then he creates distance between himself and them in verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Now, this is the law of God in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 19, 15. It says explicitly in both, you must have more than one witness to bring a case. But Jesus is telling them your law, the one that you find your identity in, the one that you are responsible for keeping, says that there needs to be two witnesses. So let me speak then in terms that you'll understand. You want two witnesses? I'm one and the father is two. You have no greater witnesses in anywhere. But yet you don't know me and you don't know my father. I am the one who bears witness about myself, verse 18. And the father who sent me bears witness about me again. Equality with the father and the son. 
And they responding naturally to a spiritual claim say, where is your father? Where is Joseph? Now I don't think they knew Joseph. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. We're going to spend a lot more time on this because this will come up several more times in John. They're still thinking naturally. You can't know the father unless you know the son. And vice versa. You can't know the son unless you know, unless the father is drawing you to the son. There's no getting to God apart from Christ. People ask this all the time. You can't know the father. Well, is there any other way to God besides Christ? No, unless Jesus is a liar. You can't know the father if you don't know me. There is no knowledge of God apart from the illumination of the word of God. My last quote. C.S. Lewis. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Love that. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. The Pharisees were just plotting to arrest him. He came, he's still there in the treasury with these lampposts still standing right next to him. Where everyone would have gathered in the treasury is where they had, uh, they had, they had 13 treasure boxes and everything that was needed to support worship in Israel. Each one had its own purpose. They would come and give. Everyone was there day after day. This is the, the, the marketplace of the, the, the temple. And this is where Jesus was speaking in the midst of this, this celebration. Might have even been some hangovers from the night before. And he's telling them, I am the light of the world. To know my father, you must know me. And you have no, you have, a, you have no need of any greater witness. So what do we take apart from this or take away with, from this? Christ is the light of the world. He is what the world needs generally and salvifically or spiritually. We find our natural life in him, but also our spiritual life in him. And in him, we have light. And we are light. And just a bit of self-assessment before we go home. Are you still walking in darkness? Are you still stumbling around trying to move your way through the dark and bumping into everything that comes across your path? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will no longer walk in darkness. Come to the light. And for many believers, do you have light, but do you often prefer the darkness? How many believers are still stumbling around in what they feel? I don't feel like God loves me today. I don't feel like God is with me today. So I'm going to put my, my, my clouds on and block the sun. But the light that is within us will shine through any cloud. Our little lights, even though we might feel like a flickering firefly sometimes, the Holy Spirit of God is within us. This light that burns forever. We need to rest in who Christ is and what he has done for us and know that the light of the, the world loved you so much that he came down and died for you.
shed his blood so that you would have light and give light to others. We can take our little lights and let them shine. And let's rejoice that the light of the world came into the world so that we could walk in light and we could behold his glory clearly, the very Shekinah glory of God revealed to us to be with us forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, our light and our salvation, the very breath that we breathe we owe to you. We do not deserve your love, your favor, your mercy, yet you have shined your light upon us. How in awe we should be that we get to behold your presence, that you have revealed yourself to us, that everything that Israel has been looking for for thousands of years has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you loved us in the midst of our darkness. And that though, even though we preferred darkness, you shine your light upon us. And I just pray that as believers, we would be emboldened and encouraged of the light that we possess through Christ and to walk in it and to bask in it and to celebrate it. Those who are in darkness or prefer darkness, that you would expose the lies that the darkness tells them, that the fears and the discouragement that come into the into our minds apart from Christ. That you would expose every evil thought and desire and bring it captive in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is in that name that we worship, pray, sing, and glory. The name of Jesus Christ. Amen.